This episode of The Great War Podcast is brought to you by Audible. The good people at Audible are offering you, the listeners of The Great War Podcast, a free audiobook download when you sign up for a no-cost 30-day trial membership. You can qualify for this offer by going to audibletrial.com forward slash gwarpodcast. That again is audibletrial.com forward slash gwarpodcast. Whether it's for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 device, Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from. If there's ever been a book you've wanted to read, but just haven't found the time to sit down and read it, Audible has got you covered. There's something for everyone, ranging from horror to comedy to science fiction and history. This week, I'm going to recommend a book which just came out, Dead Wake, The Crossing of the Lusitania by Eric Larson. Now, I have not gotten around to this one myself yet, but over the holidays, I did manage to squeeze out some time to read Larson's previous book, In the Garden of Beasts, which chronicled the experience of American Ambassador William Dodd in the early days of Hitler's regime. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I'm sure that Dead Wake is just as gripping. So remember, to download your free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com forward slash gwarpodcast. No capitals, no spaces. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash gwarpodcast for your free audiobook. Hello, and welcome to The Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 26, Field of Blackbirds. In a year which just refused to get better for the Allies, Italian entry in May 1915 was a disappointing consolation. The situation in France had not improved. The Dardanelles continued to grind up men at an exasperating rate, and any hope of assisting the Russians was eliminated, when the armies of the Central Powers bludgeoned them out of Galicia and Poland. The Allies had hoped that a fresh and energized Italian army would help make up some of the losses sustained over the year. But soon enough, the Italians would join their French and British allies by involving themselves in an attritional contest of their own, and whatever hope the Allies reserved for Italy fizzled out over the following weeks. However, there was one positive upswing to all this. By joining the Entente powers, Italy had forced Austria-Hungary to divert a significant chunk of manpower away from the now-dormant Serbian front, which came as a welcome piece of news to the bewildered Serbs. Since their impressive showing the previous year, the Kingdom of Serbia was on the precipice of collapse. The architect of Serbia's 1914 victory, General Radomir Putnik, remained a national hero, and the Serb people, as always, remained determined to fight on. But the year had not been kind to Serbia. The campaigns of 1914 had reduced his military capabilities significantly. Artillery and manpower were in short supply, and with no viable seaports or overland access, the Allies could do little to remedy the situation. In December, an outbreak of typhus had ravaged the population, claiming 200,000 civilians, including 70,000 soldiers, leaving Putnik with just a husk of his former army. To anyone with a map, it was clear that Serbia was living on a short string, and with no progress being made at the Dardanelles or the Isonzo, there was nothing in the way of stopping the Central Powers from wheeling south and eliminating the Serb threat altogether. On October 7, 1915, Falconite's combined armies would fall on the exhausted nation, serving to cap off a disastrous year for the Entente Allies. The defeat of Serbia serves to exemplify the helpless situation the Allies found themselves as 1915 wound to a close, but it also represents one of the great human stories of the Great War. As the Central Powers tightened their grip, the entire Serb nation, its government, military, and tens of thousands of civilians would flee into the Albanian mountains, on an exhaustive and dangerous march to the Adriatic coast. 
The cost of the evacuation would be tremendous, but the resilience of the Serb people would show the Allies that victory was not yet out of reach. As the Austro-German armies completed their conquest of Poland, the senior commanders assembled at Falkenhayn's headquarters in southeast Germany, with Ludendorff, Galwitz, Mackensen, and Konrad von Hutzendorf all attending. A number of important issues were brought up, from supply movements, troop morale, wounded care, and forecast reports. But the most present concern centered around the German army, and what Falkenhayn planned to do now that the campaign season was on the wrong end of 1915. Taking stock of military events unfolding in the West, the Dardanelles, and Italian Front, it was concluded that with the Entente Allies focused elsewhere, the Central Powers were given a narrow gap in which to extend their gains in the East. But believe it or not, it was not Falkenhayn, or even Konrad von Hutzendorf, who first brought up the idea of attacking Serbia. Unimpressed with the Entente's display at the Dardanelles, the Bulgarian king, Ferdinand I, had approached the Germans with a list of conditions which would see Bulgaria enter the war on the side of the Central Powers. In 1914, the Bulgarians had opted for neutrality because the wounds sustained in the Balkan Wars remained unhealed. You'll recall from episode 11 that in June 1913, the First Balkan War concluded with an uneasy peace, as Serbia, Greece, and Montenegro felt they had been sideswiped by their former Bulgarian ally during the peace settlements. This animosity eventually erupted into a second conflict just a month later, when the three aforementioned states, plus Romania, simultaneously attacked the Bulgarians, aiming to reclaim the territories which they felt rightly belonged to them. When the continental war erupted the following year, the Bulgarians very much wanted to join the dual monarchy in their attack against Serbia, but correctly assessed that by doing so would have undoubtedly brought the Romanians, Montenegrins, and Greeks in as well, effectively reigniting the Balkan conflicts for a third time, so the Bulgarians remained on the sidelines for the time being. The Urkuta enter arrived when the Suvla Bay landings at Gallipoli went kersplat on August 21st, King Ferdinand, along with his German-educated Prime Minister, Vasil Radislav, felt that momentum had swung back in favor of the Central Powers, and with the latest Dardanelles failure coinciding with the Russian Great Retreat, who could really blame them? Bulgarian goals were simple. They wanted to reclaim Macedonia from the Serbs, but in exchange for their belligerency, King Ferdinand and Prime Minister Radislav drove a hard bargain. They wanted to see Serbia attacked for a second time, except now under the auspices of a respected German general with German troops leading the way. The civilian military leaders in Bulgaria had seen the disastrous Austrian invasion up close, and wisely so, did not want them touching this second invasion with a 10-foot pole. The Austro-Hungarians could take a support role if they so pleased, but all logistics and planning were to go through German command, no exceptions. If these requirements were satisfied, King Ferdinand assured that within two weeks of the second invasion, Bulgaria's forces would join the fight and attack Serbia from the west, forcing Putnik and the Serb army to defend on two fronts. Although reigniting the Serbian front had a potential risk, Falkenhayn believed the Bulgarian terms were worth it. It was no secret that the Serb army was in disarray, and the position of Belgrade on the south bank of the Danube meant that German troops need not risk being drawn into the interior. Encouraging Falkenhayn was that the Bulgarians were offering to take over the campaign once they had committed themselves, so all he had to do was to get the ball rolling and let their new ally take care of the rest. From a strategic perspective as well, the Bulgarian offer made sense. Not only could Bulgarian forces keep a watchful eye on neutral Greece and Romania, but by eliminating Serbia, it would also serve to isolate the Russians, meaning the Balkans would no longer be an area of concern, so it was a win-win. German and Bulgarian diplomats ironed out the final details over the following weeks, and on September 6, 1915, the agreement was put in writing. Bulgaria would have 30 days to mobilize and make good on their promises. The respected German general whom the Bulgarians required was August von Mackensen, who was handpicked by Falkenhayn himself. 
Mackensen's performance at Gorlitzi Tarnoff in Poland had ranked him among the most capable generals in the German army, and was known for his keen eye for logistics and meticulous planning. Mackensen, who was often seen sporting a Tutankhof, or dead man's skull, on his headdress, had served as a cavalry officer during the Franco-Prussian War, and was heavily influenced by Alfred von Schlieffen, whose painstaking attention to the littlest of details was legendary. Almost immediately after the Germans and Bulgarians agreed to terms, there was a flurry of activity along the Danube, as Mackensen prepped for the second invasion of Serbia. Nearly 330,000 troops were marshaled, along with 1,200 artillery pieces. In order to ensure a speedy crossing, pontoon bridges and riverboats from Bosnia were brought up in vast quantities, scouts were sent to survey the best placements for artillery batteries, and, most importantly, a mobile supply caravan was assembled, designed to follow the troops as they drove south. Unlike Ian Hamilton's planning prior to the Glipley landings, Mackensen had left nothing to chance, putting together a large logistics and intelligence network where if anything hit a snag, everyone had a job to do. In his post-war memoirs, Falkenhayn writes that preparations were so thorough, all the troops had to do was march up and proceed instantly with the crossing. However, Falkenhayn admits that he came close to pulling the plug on the whole thing, because on September 23rd, a coordinated French and British attack in Champagne and Artois had nearly broken through the line. This was in part the Battles of Luz, which we will get into next week. When the hammer fell, it would come from three directions. Four Austro-Hungarian divisions, supplemented by three German, would advance on Belgrade. While just east of the city, the 11th Army under Maximilian von Galwitz would attack at Rom, with an additional feint attack occurring near the Serb-Romanian border. As per their agreement with the Bulgarians, the combined armies were to occupy the northern sectors for the first week. Then, on October 11th, Bulgaria was to mobilize its 500,000-strong army and attack from the west towards Nish, which was now serving as a temporary wartime capital. Now, on the Serbian side of things, Putnik knew the attack was coming. After all, the buildup along the Danube could hardly go unnoticed. In 1914, the Serbian army had mobilized 300,000 men with 381 artillery pieces. But now, Putnik can only count 195,000 troops and less than 300 guns to defend the line. With the bulk of Serbia's frontline troops killed in the 1914 campaign and subsequent typhus outbreaks, the ranks were made up of fresh recruits, elderly reserves, and 20,000 troops sent from Montenegro. Putnik assessed that he could not go blow for blow with the invading army, but if there remained any chance of fighting this off, he could only hope that the same tenacity which had shown itself in 1914 would again make an appearance. And, to Putnik's surprise, it almost did. The silence of the morning on October 7th was shattered when Mackensen's artillery began a preliminary bombardment zeroed on Belgrade. The weather that day was appalling, as autumn rains and creeping fog made the river crossing ever more dangerous. The Serbian defense line just southwest of Belgrade managed to put up a stronger defensive fire than Mackensen had predicted. Among the first wave of troops to cross the Danube, casualties were high. Many of the pontoon bridges received direct hits, sending bits of men, horse, and material in all directions. Those lucky enough to survive the blast were often swept away in the current, or taken into captivity. Although the Serbian government had long evacuated Belgrade, the fighting for control of the city was close quarter and street to street. Vicious hand-to-hand -hand struggles were widely reported, as the Serbs made the invaders pay for every inch. It took the Austro-German armies a full 48 hours to secure the city, which was not cleared of opposition until October 9th. The weight of the Central Powers offensive had overwhelmed Putnik's defense, and at a cost of 7,000 men, began a fighting withdrawal almost immediately. But Mackensen, the calculating tactician, did not go barreling after Putnik because the German commitment was nearly fulfilled. By October 11th, the Central Powers had secured a foothold south of the Danube, and all that was left to do was wait for the Bulgarians. Now, Bulgarian mobilization took a bit longer than expected, and they were a few days behind schedule. But on October 14th, King Fernhand made good on his terms. 
Two full-strength Bulgarian armies, nearly 400,000 men in total invaded from the west, driving deep into the Serbian heartland. Although substantially smaller than the Italian army, the Bulgarian troops were of high quality, and, taking lessons from the Balkan Wars, were all too energetic to extract some revenge on their Serb rivals. From the perspective of the Entente allies, Bulgarian entry on the side of the Central Powers presented a serious crisis. What concerned the allies above all was what would happen if Serbia were to fall, and there was no question that she would indeed without assistance. Fighting Mackinson's experienced armies, along with fresh Bulgarian troops, was too much for the beleaguered Serbs to sustain, and that proved a potentially devastating development. When Serbia fell, it would clear the way for the Germans to utilize sections of the Balkan railway network, which ran from Nish through to Sofia, the Bulgarian capital. This meant that goods could be shipped straight from Berlin on through to Constantinople, without having to bypass neutral Greece or Romania. The big concern for the Allies was that this opened the possibility of German artillery and equipment arriving at the Dardanelles, making the Allied position there ever more precarious. It was the security of the Dardanelles which prompted the Allies to act, leaving directly into a second, if not totally self-inflicted crisis. But in order to understand what happened next, we need to leave Serbia and hop on down to Greece, and look at what was unfolding there because despite their best efforts, the Allies were about to commit themselves to another embarrassing blunder. Prior to the October invasion, the Entente Allies were not blind to the Serbian plight. The Serbian Crown Prince, Alexander Karagagorovic, and the Prime Minister, Nikolai Pasic, had made repeated overtures for a relief effort, and the idea had become a hot potato since November 1914, with the French passing it to the British, and the British onto the Russians. The key problem in resupplying Serbia was that it was landlocked, with no access to seaports capable of handling the quantity of supplies. For the astute listeners out there, this is all pretty ironic considering it was the British, French, and Russians who had forced the Serbs to abandon their Adriatic ports as a concession to the Austrians following the First Balkan War. Funny how that all turned out. Now the Allies could have used ports at Montenegro, but as we saw last day, Italy's delayed entry had allowed the Austro-Hungarian navy to control the North Adriatic, and neither the French or British navies were going to draw them into a fight for the sake of Serbia. However, another option soon presented itself. Down in Athens, the ambitious Greek Prime Minister, Eleftherios Venizelos, had worked out a deal allowing French and British access to the port at Salonika, for the purposes of sending aid to the Serbs via the single rail line running through to Macedonia. Now, Prime Minister Venizelos is a major figure in Greek political history, so much so they named a major airport in Athens after him. I've seen Venizelos often compared to Bismarck, in the sense that both were dominating figures in their respective nations, and played the diplomatic game with a shrewd edge. Like Bismarck had, Venizelos believed in the strength of the collective, and his vision was to see all Greek speakers united under a modern Greek state, a philosophy he coined the Great Idea. Similar to Antonio Salandra in Italy, Venizelos was eager to get Greece into the war on the side of the Entente, but was hampered because the king of Greece, Constantine, had pro-German sympathies having married Kaiser Wilhelm's sister in 1889. Normally, this would be an insurmountable obstacle, but Venizelos had cooked up a way to get Greece into the war while minimizing conflict risk with Germany. Between the two Balkan Wars, Serbia and Greece had signed a defensive alliance, promising military aid if either was to be attacked by Bulgaria. So when the rumor mill began to spin into high gear prior to Bulgaria's intervention, Venizelos foresaw the Bulgarian attack on Serbia, and assessed that it would force Greece to mobilize 150,000 troops in response. So on October 5th, a pair of British and French divisions sent from the Dardanelles landed at Salonika, disguised as a token force to help supplement the Greeks. But when Venizela stood in front of Parliament to make his case for joining the Entente, Constantine overruled him, saying no, Greece will remain neutral. 
Why would Greece risk a war with Germany for the sake of the Serbs? I mean, come on, Venizelos, are you nuts? But Venizelos was not nuts. The Greco-Serb defensive pact was legally binding. It's just that Constantine was refusing to recognize it, and had support of the army to boot. Red-faced and flabbergasted, Venizelos was forced to resign. But, luckily for the Greeks, the awkwardness was really just getting started. Whether Constantine thought dismissing Venizelos would re-establish his popularity or reclaim some faded monarchical privilege is up for debate, but I can tell you that his decision to keep Greece neutral had absolutely no impact on Allied plans for Salonika. The French and British, you see, had already violated Greek neutrality in the past. The first instance was in the Dardanelles operation when Admiral Cardin used Madras as a base for his fleet, and most recently, the French had seized Corfu in the west in order to keep a watch on Austro-Hungarian warships in the Adriatic. So to the Allies, there was no moral qualm over holding on to Salonika, and basically decided to ignore Constantine's decree and refuse to leave, knowing the Greeks were too weak to eject them militarily. In the days and weeks following Bulgaria's entry, the Salonika garrison received two additional divisions from France, which were soon followed by a second British division from the Darnells, growing the number of Allied troops to just under 100,000 men. Despite the growing pool of troops, weapons, and equipment, which no doubt could have gone to better use elsewhere, the Salonika garrison, now dubbed the Army of the Orient, barely moved, like at all. The Greeks, although not hostile to the arriving troops, were none too impressed with the foreign army invading their shores, and kept the Allied troops contained along the coast. Meanwhile, German and Turkish spies at Salonika kept accurate manifests as more men and material rolled off the ships. Nothing the Allies did could be kept a secret. But in order to prove this was a serious relief effort, there was one attempt to get aid to the Serbs, which took place in late October. But the effort did not get far before it was turned back due to poor weather, a problem which was further compounded when news arrived on November 3rd that the Bulgarians had seized the rail line into Macedonia, forcing the expedition back on foot. What this meant for the Serbs was, with no relief coming, they were now cocooned in the interior, with the combined armies to the north and east, and now the Bulgarians in the southwest. Despite this, the Allied buildup at Salonika continued, and soon enough, the small port was transformed into a fortress, with vast stockpiles of munitions, field hospitals, and motor pools, but with little to show for it. It soon became a laughingstock and a source of great embarrassment, leaving many critics to label it the largest Allied internment camp of the war. A harsh assessment, but not too far from the truth. Meanwhile, as the Allies bumbled at Salonika, the fighting in Serbia continued. Putnik's fighting retreat had succeeded in slowing the Bulgarian advance, and was further assisted by the fact that the Bulgarians were navigating unfamiliar terrain, and thus moved with greater caution. With no help coming from Salonika, there was not much Putnik could do, and his depleted army could only fight with what they had carried with them. Beginning on November 19th, Putnik chose to make his final stand near the outskirts of Pristina, roughly 225 kilometers south of Belgrade, along the Kosovo Plateau. Putnik had chosen his ground carefully. The plateau surrounding Pristina is a historic place, known as the Field of Blackbirds. Serb folklore has it that on these same fields back in 1389, an outmatched Serbian army gutted an invading Ottoman force, going down to the last man in the process. While historians, both in and outside Serbia, debate its authenticity, the battle is commonly seen as the beginning of Serbia's national identity and the resolve of its peoples to protect their sovereignty from foreign occupation. This 1389 contest was the famous Battle of Kosovo, whose commemoration is usually dated for June the 28th, and in 1914, coincided with Archduke Franz Ferdinand's visit to Sarajevo. So, it is not hard to see why extreme Serbian nationalists saw the Archduke's visit as an added insult. Anyway, uh, back to the present. Putnik no doubt hoped that choosing the Kosovo Plateau would evoke some fierce sense of national pride, and rile up his troops to stage their own 20th century version of the Field of Blackbirds. 
The Serbian defenders fought hard. They really did. But by this point, a second wave of typhus had swept through the ranks, afflicting Putnik himself, who was soon rendered immobile. For the men, many of whom were sick, traumatized, and emotionally exhausted, could only count their personal rifles and a few light-caliber field guns and mortars to defend the line. Facing a 4-1 manpower disadvantage, with no reinforcements on the horizon, the heroic final stand was a foregone conclusion. The battle got underway on November 23rd, as the 1st and 2nd Bulgarian armies hit from the west, with sections of the German 11th Army under von Privitz stood menacing from the north. Owing to the difficult topography, the Bulgarian pincer was slow to close, as the dirt roads were first caked in mud and then frozen stiff as the temperature plummeted. Hours into the battle, Putnik held council with Prime Minister Pasek and Crown Prince Alexander, who, along with King Peter, had evacuated Nice just hours before. The leaders convinced Putnik that if Serbia was to be defeated, it would not submit itself to a foreign occupation, and the decision to begin the evacuation was made. The Crown Prince and Pasek soon secured safe refuge along the Albanian coast, where French and Italian vessels stationed at occupied ports in Albania would ferry the king, Pasek's government, the army, and the tens of thousands of civilians who had followed them south into exile on Corfu. Serbia was defeated, but it would not capitulate. On November 25th, the Serbs began a rearguard action as they began to fall back towards the coast. Accompanied by their king, crown prince, prime minister, and chief of staff, the Serbian nation slipped the Bulgarian pincer and began their long march into Albania. The best way to describe the retreat of December 1915 is to borrow a phrase which often appears in the historiography, which says that the retreat was not that of an army, but of a country. The original source of this quote comes from a Mrs. M. Barclay, an English volunteer nurse stationed in Serbia. While we don't have reliable information about the number of civilians involved in the flight, the best accounts we do have come from the Allied nurses who selflessly endured the same challenges as the Serbs themselves. In France and Britain, the defeat of Serbia was met with an outpouring of support, as many had come to see it as another Belgium, having stood bravely in the face of overwhelming odds. Once the evacuation of Corfu got underway, Allied publications were hungry for tales of heroism, and many personal testimonies from English and French-speaking nurses soon circulated at both the home front and front line. Of these stories, the most popular and enduring came from Mabel Stubbard, whose selfless dedication to the wounded, both civilian and military alike, became the stuff of legend. An English nurse who volunteered for the Russian front after the fall of Belgium, Stubbard is famously remembered in the 1916 George Rankin painting entitled The Lady of the Black Horse. After the war, Stabard published her memoirs, The Flaming Sword in Serbia and Elsewhere, which graphically illustrates the near-apocalyptic scenes. Quote, Upon entering the town, it was the usual story. Abandoned by its inhabitants, houses shuttered and deserted, the whole town in darkness, except that along the walls of the houses, wherever space permitted, campfires had been lighted, and refugees, men, women, children, and old men were crouched in groups, sleeping or sitting in silence, waiting for the dawn. End quote. Further accounts, like those from Monica M. Stanley, who worked alongside Stabard in the Women's Imperial Service League, depicts the struggle. Further accounts, like those from Monica M. Stanley, who worked alongside Stabard in the Women's Imperial Service League, depicts the struggle. Stanley's diary recounts that the road into Albania was lined with sick and starving civilians. Pack animals which died from exhaustion were immediately pounced upon by the ravaged crowds, and the dead were stripped of all clothing. Soldiers hopped along on sticks or used their rifles as makeshift crutches and almost everyone suffered from frostbite, dysentery, or typhus. But this was just the beginning. Hot on their heels, the Bulgarians continued to shell the retreating Serb army, resulting in further casualties. Hot on their heels, the Bulgarians continued to shell the retreating Serb army, resulting in further civilian casualties. 
while the path of retreat led the refugee columns into the Albanian mountains, where driving snow and sub-zero temperatures claimed more lives. Putnik, himself suffering from typhus, had to be carried by his loyal soldiers through the hazardous passes. What makes the Serbian exodus all the more remarkable is, for the first time, we see a sovereign state opting for evacuation over capitulation. This was not like the Russians retreating from Poland, nor was it like the evacuation at Dunkirk in 1940. Normal civilians, men, women, and children, followed their leaders through nightmarish conditions as the central powers tightened their grip. They were not expelled from their homes, or ordered into exile by an occupying state, and this was not another column of refugees fleeing a country as their government stayed behind. Serbia itself, its heads of state, military, and large portions of the population evacuated en masse, and they did so voluntarily, which makes this whole thing damn near biblical in my opinion. King and commoner alike walk side by side which is unlike anything recorded in modern history. From the decision to evacuate on November 24th to the first trickle of survivors reaching the Albanian coast in early December, some 200,000 civilians and soldiers died from disease or starvation. From a pre-war population of 4.5 million, it is estimated that 27% of Serbia's population died between August 1914 and December 1915. The flight from Serbia certainly paints a powerful image and remains one of the great examples of how the war in the East was a totally different animal than that of the West. As they had in 1914, the Serbs had proven that they were not going to lay down and become subjects of a foreign occupation. They would rather abandon their homes as long as there remained even a slight chance of reclaiming them in the future. The Serbian government, safely exiled on the Corfu, would operate out of an amphitheater for the remainder of the war, and the 133,000 troops evacuated from Albania would be sent to the growing buildup at Salonika, where they would begin planning to retake their homeland. Now, no one should have been more happy about Serbia's defeat than Konrad von Hutzendorf. But even the fall of his longtime nemesis was little consolation, because he could only watch as the Germans and Bulgarians took the lion's share of the credit. Although he expressed joy that the, quote, Serbian pack of murderers had been dealt with, he knew that with the government and army slavery in exile, the job was only half done. No peace agreements with the legitimate Serb government was signed, and as a result, a temporary provisional government was set up, which needed the presence of a strong garrison to keep order. This was hardly the end result Conrad had hoped for. But there was one positive Conrad could take from this. The Austro-German armies had put together an impressive string of victories that year. Galicia, Poland, and now Serbia, which had shown that joint ventures could bring desirable results. Conrad immediately proposed another offensive against the Italians, beginning in the spring of 1916, but Falkenhayn would have none of it. Besides the fact that Italy and Germany were not yet at war with one another, the victories of that year had not brought Falkenhayn and his Austrian counterpart closer together, and Falkenhayn was eager to rid himself of the Austrians and get back to the real fight on the Western Front. In an effort to re-establish his independence, Conrad ordered the Austrian divisions, now freed from Mackesson's command, to attack Montenegro, which fell to the Habsburgs on January 23, 1916. The conquest of Montenegro marks the first and only victory the Habsburgs would enjoy without German assistance. As the Bulgarians completed their occupation of Serbia, Falkenhayn officially called an end to the German campaign in the east for 1915. In his memoirs, Falkenhayn reflects on the events of the past year and I'm just going to read a bit of it to help play us out for this week. Quote, In the East, we had reached the goals we had set before us. We had kept within the limits of the possible and confining ourselves to paralyzing the offensive power of the Russian Colossus so effectively that recovery would hardly seem possible. The alliance with Bulgaria and the destruction of the Serbian army had opened the road to the southeast. Any future menace from Serbia or from the direction of the Dardanelles seemed to have been removed once and for all. End quote. 
Now content with the five-month eastern offensive, Falkenhayn can now turn his attention to what he had wanted from the beginning, to wage a war of attrition against the French army. And it was this decision by Falkenhayn which would forever change the direction of the Great War. Next week, we are back on the Western Front to discuss the French and British efforts of September 1915, the ones which almost derailed the invasion of Serbia. Not only did the battles of Champagne and Artois mark the first deployment of chlorine gas by the British, but more importantly, result in the firing of Sir John French and the promotion of Sir Douglas Haig to supreme command of the BEF, which represents an important turning point all on its own. That's it for this week. Check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find Twitter and email information if you wish to get in contact with me. Questions, comments, and suggestions are always more than welcome. I would like to give a couple shout-outs to listeners Neville Hipple from Australia and Randy Palmer from Philly, who recently donated to the show. Thank you very much. You guys are awesome. For those of you wanting to make a donation, you'll find the donate button on the website, which again is thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com, or you can look us up on iTunes and write us a quick five-star review, as that will help keep us afloat in the rankings and attract any new listeners out there. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.